Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This is a character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Good morning, everyone. Great to have you with us with Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN. It's 7 o'clock. Your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. Michelle Smallman, Randy Carriker. good morning to you, Michelle. Happy Friday. Happy Friday, Randy. I wish it was uh, better weather outside, but hey, Friday's still a Friday. It is. Yeah, we can go. Today is nap day, isn't it? Today oh, is totally call. map day. Nap day. I like how you turn that frown upside down. You yeah. totally just switched the perspective. Sunshine, lollipops. <laughs> Yeah. We have a lot going on today. We're going to talk to our friend Daniel Kaplan of The Athletic. He has a great story about Stan Kroenke and his request for half a billion dollars in loans from the NFL. Daniel will join us at the bottom of the hour, our weekly visit. We have the Blues analyst Joey Vitale. By the way, the Blues did not win last night. They fell to the uh, San Jose Sharks in overtime, and that was a crushing defeat. Yeah, you know, Randy, it's crazy that the refs didn't see that hand pass. I don't know how the Blues are going to respond. Those refs are the worst. The worst. Yeah, so Joey Vitale will talk to us about that. And we're going to talk to Big Saxy, Mark Saxon from The Athletic. He's got some interesting stuff, and there's some good baseball material coming our way. Let's start with the the Rams, and we'll just touch on this for a brief moment because we're going to talk to Daniel Kaplan at the bottom of the hour. But Stan Kroenke, who purportedly has $13 billion, is requesting $500 million in additional NFL stadium financing because of cost overruns at SoFi Stadium. Randy, I hate to see it. Sad. And I and I wonder how the NFL is taking this request because it's not just $500 million, it's an additional Right, right. It, it'll, it'll take him up to nine hundred million in loans from the league if it passes next week. It wasn't the point of them puppeteering all of this and convincing Stan to do this because he was going to pay for all of this himself. Yeah, that was the deal. That we're going here. We're letting him build this because he has so much money he can afford it. Mm-hmm. Give us a break. Give us a break. Uh, take it or leave it. When the owners have their virtual meeting next week, Stan. Jerry Jones, Virginia McCaskey, and Martha Ford will not need help technically getting on that Zoom call. I am going to leave it. Well, I'm thinking about Jerry on the yacht during the draft, right? Yeah, right. So there's no way he did it himself. Absolutely not. But we didn't see him struggling. So I'm going to leave it because someone's definitely going to set it up for them. But... I don't think we'll see the struggle in action, which I would love to see. Yeah, that'd be pretty funny. Hey, this isn't working. That'd be great. (laughs) You have to unmute it, Jerry. Unmute it. (laughs) Hey, Michelle, there's some good news in regards to baseball. If indeed we do play this year, Rick Hummel over at stltoday.com and in the Post-Dispatch saying that Jordan Hicks might be available for the Cardinals. Uh, John Mosaic, the Cardinal Pobo, saying we're feeling good where he is on his rehab. Obviously, I'm not doing this right. We're feeling good where he is on his (laughs) rehab. Obviously, it's not normal and clearly not normal. But the reports that he's feeling good about himself are certainly encouraging. 
was a good mo, Randy. Thank you. Yeah. Do you have to mentally... to check our arbitrage. Do you have to mentally picture yourself in a scarf or totally. and a bow tie to really go there? I'm yeah. impressed. But this is great news. And this is... We we hate that sports is not here. It's it's all clouds and thunderstorms. Mm. But sometimes you have to look at the silver lining. And one of the silver linings of this situation is that players who are injured or players who are rehabbing have had additional time to rehab and get better. And Jordan Hicks is one of those guys. Doesn't it feel like forever that we have seen Jordan Hicks in action? It really does. He The announcement of his injury came on the day I was getting my tattoo. We were doing the show over at the Ink Spot in St. Peter's, and so that was our topic du jour, because it was handed to us, was that he was going to undergo Tommy John surgery. When we talk about the Cardinals and and their pitching setup, we forget that Jordan Hicks is coming back. A lot of times he's not even someone that gets brought up in that conversation because it's been so long. And Danny Mack, who by the way is going to have Chris Pronger on Scoops with Danny Mack today between 10 and 11, Danny Mack was talking about the piggyback effect that the Cardinals can use this year because of all their pitchers. He was talking about that yesterday on his show. Think about this, Michelle. If you have a six-man rotation of Flaherty, Hudson, Wainwright, Martinez, Michaelis, and KK. Mm -hmm. So those are your six starters. Then to piggyback and give you two or three innings after those guys, at least early in the season, you have Ponce de Leon, Hennessy Cabrera, Alex Reyes, Austin Gomber, John Gant, maybe even Jake Woodford. And then for your late bullpen, and Junior Fernandez can swing back and forth between the late bullpen or being a, a piggyback guy. Then in the late bullpen, you've got the lefties, Andrew Miller and uh, Tyler Webb, and then Brebia, Gallegos, Helsley, Hicks to finish. You've got a pretty strong setup there. Yeah, there's a couple names that, as you said, that I'm thinking question mark, but not many. The, the general consensus is that would be a great setup and, and be a threat for the Cardinals, definitely. And I do think that it would be presumptuous on the part of the Cardinals to think that even if they start on the 4th of July, and he was supposed to be back around the All-Star break, if they think they're going to be able to go two weeks without him and then just plug him in as mm-hmm. their closer, that might be a little bit of a high expectation. They have to ease him in. And there is a way to ease, especially a hard thrower, back in from Tommy John. And he hasn't been working out with Cardinal supervision. He's been working out on his own. So we can't sit here and say, okay, he's going to be the closer. But like you said... It provides the Cardinals an optimistic outlook, at least for most of the season. Yeah, that's one thing we can't forget about this situation is he can digitally report how he's feeling and what he's doing. But there's a huge difference between them looking at it on a Zoom or however they've been keeping in touch with him. And for them to actually have doctors looking at him and the trainers checking him out and seeing what they can see in real life. But I, I also know that when we were, I believe it was Dan that we were, or who was that we were talking to? Maybe Rick Horton, when he was saying this season, normally baseball is a marathon. This season is going to be a sprint. And I just mm-hmm. hope that the Cardinals don't look at a situation like this where they say, okay, he seems ready and we know that every game matters that much more. So let's throw him in there. I hope they're still very cautious with them. And really from an injury standpoint, that's all they have to worry about. There isn't at the end of that Washington series last year, there weren't any things where you said I'm really concerned about him for spring training 2020 and Matt Carpenter had suffered his injury Michaelis had had his injury in spring training, but those were considered injuries that if we started on in April, 
that they would have been fine. So I think the Cardinals and everybody else should be pretty darn healthy heading into a season that would start hopefully in the first week of August or first week of July. I'm delaying things here for you. (laughs) That's okay. Well, please don't anymore. We've had it delayed enough. Rob Manfred was on CNN Town Hall last night with Dr. Sanjay Gupta and Anderson Cooper, and he said that he's hopeful that baseball can get a spring training started in about a month, a little less than a month, and then start the season in the first week of July. And one of the big concerns that we all have and that baseball and players should have, actually it should be bigger than the financial concern, is what about the health of the players? And Commissioner Manfred was asked about baseball's testing program. Well, our, our planning is this. Um, we intend to um, reduce the risk associated with that time lag by frequency of testing. Um, we had um, an arrangement with a lab in Utah that has historically done our minor league drug testing. Um, we paid, made an investment to convert them over uh, to do the testing that we need in, in order to play. Um, we have an established set of healthcare professionals that have done collections for drug testing that we'll use for this same purpose. The lab in Utah um, has assured us of a 24-hour turnaround on all uh, on all of our tests. So we feel comfortable that by doing multiple tests a week and trying to minimize that, that turnaround time, we're doing everything humanly possible to make sure that the players are safe. Multiple tests a week, and if you test positive, you're quarantined until you test negative twice within 24 hours. This is huge. To hear the commissioner of baseball say this stuff, to for him to come out with this publicly tells you that things are rolling. Mm-hmm. Because this is obviously something they've been working on for a while. But I don't think he would say these things publicly unless things were getting ready to roll, right? I'm with you 100%. And obviously, they were ahead of the game, weren't they? When you yes. talk about retrofitting a drug testing lab to make it a coronavirus testing lab, they were, I'm sure, thinking about this in March. And they are far along. And I'm, they're presenting a more than 80-page proposal just on health to the players. And if the players aren't satisfied, like we said yesterday, and we're going to talk later about Blake Snell, if they aren't satisfied, they have every right to not participate. But it doesn't seem like they should think that baseball isn't concerned about their health. Oh, absolutely not. And if you're a player, this is really, yes, you're still... There's that anxiety, that nervousness. You're still leaving the incubation of your home with your family to go out here and do this. But you're going to be in an essentially isolated area. You're getting multiple tests. The turnaround from those tests is 24 hours. So you're not going to have to wait to know like a lot of people have been experiencing throughout this process. And I I think that it's it's hard to understand this, but it's in the owner's best interest to not have a player get sick. Yes. It is in their best interest to make sure this goes smoothly and that everyone is healthy. So they know that every possible resource that these owners and Major League Baseball has at their disposal, they're going to enact it to ensure the health and safety of these players. And the players obviously want to play and they want to make a lot of money. And Rob Manfred was asked, what if from an owner's perspective, there isn't a 2020 season. Yeah, the the economic effects are um, devastating, uh, frankly, for the clubs. Um, We're a big business, but we're a seasonal business. And um, unfortunately, uh, this crisis began at kind of the low point for us in terms of revenue. We hadn't quite started our season yet. And if we don't play a season, the losses for the owners could approach $4 billion. And 
not only would that be devastating, obviously, for ownership and the clubs, but for any player that's in free agency, mm-hmm. for any player that has a contract coming up, it's going to trickle down to being devastating for the players and everybody involved in baseball, too. I was thinking about this, Michelle. What about ticket salespeople this year? That We aren't selling any tickets. Mm-hmm. So what about baseball ticket salespeople? I didn't and, even think about that. And football yeah. and basketball and hockey. Unfortunately, those people are going to be rendered unnecessary because you don't need to have somebody to sell something that you aren't selling. There's such a ripple effect with this. You, you think about it at the surface and then you have to say, okay, how... Because in your mind, you're immediately like, okay, how, how do we get this done? Health and safety. But then it's like, oh, okay, so without fans, there's going to be an economic portion of this that everyone's going to suffer from. But then, yes, you're right. As the ripple continues, you're looking at it's very far reaching throughout the organization. And there's tons of people that are being affected by this. So hopefully we'll get baseball back at some level and hopefully it'll be back at some point at a normal level. And Rob Bamford did express cautious optimism that at some point we would be able to get back to baseball with fans in the stands. Coming up next on Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN, Marley Rivera of ESPN was with the, the Fast Lane yesterday and talked about her interview with Yadier Molina about him saying he wants to play more. Michelle and I will touch on that next on 101 ESPN. Eric and Smallman on 101 ESPN, and we remember a couple of weeks ago, Marley Rivera of ESPN wrote about her interview with Cardinal catcher Yadier Molina about how he would be now open to playing with another team beyond this season if the Cardinals don't indeed sign him to an extension. And Michelle, it's interesting that uh, A, he is already thinking about 2021, and the pandemic is a big part of that. And B, and we'll get into this a little bit later, there isn't much going on economically in baseball, and that he's talking about economics at this point. Are you surprised, though? No. That Yadier Molina is still has that fire going, even when the world around him is in a complete and total state of chaos, and that he's thinking about his future and what's going to happen. I think that he's reading the landscape, and he understands that he's going to have to have a plan. Because while he would like things to end storybook-wise here in St. Louis, where, where he gets to essentially call the shots on when he wants to leave, and that it works out in his favor, that the, he and the Cardinals can come to some sort of resolution... I don't know if that's necessarily going to happen. I mean, in baseball today, and especially in baseball now, with the financial situation that the league is dealing with, teams are going to have to make strict, strict business decisions. Emotion is going to have to be taken out of a lot of these decisions moving forward. And I don't wonder if the Cardinals are in a, and kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place when it comes to Yadier Molina. And he senses that, so he's not getting the word out as early as possible that, hey, I still have stuff in the tank. I'm ready to go. Feel free to bid for my services. I'm intrigued to see what happens when when that occurs, if indeed the Cardinals don't sign him, because I get emotionally attached to players. We all do as fans. That's what we do. But one of the, maybe the biggest problem, well, there were a lot of problems with the greatest show on turf, but they got emotionally attached to Tori and Isaac and Orlando Pace, and they kept those guys a year or two beyond their playing days or their peak playing days. And that really hurt that team for a long time because they had players that just weren't capable of playing at a winning level anymore. And that's my concern in signing a catcher who is going to turn 39 in the season that we're talking about. Especially someone like Gaddy Molina, because we know that 
he is so much more than stats. Mm -hmm. We know the intangibles that make him the greatest. We know the way that he deals with the pitching staff. The Cardinals have always been touted for young pitchers, the way that they've been able to identify and develop young pitchers. But how much of that development is attributed to Yadier Molina and the way that he works with them and the way that he calls a game and the way that he guides them? Yes, it's, it's great pitching coaches, but he is a huge factor in that equation. And don't you think, especially now, this isn't the 2004, 2005, 2006 Cardinals with a ton of veteran starters like Tony wanted. Almost every pitcher on this staff, Michaelis and Wainwright aside, is really, really young and could use the guidance of Yadier Molina. And I know a lot of people look at the situation and they say, but he's got that fire. Will he really have the self-awareness to know when it's time to hang out? Because when you're the greatest at something, when you are thriving at something all the time, you know you're the man. It's hard to identify sometimes when it's time to go. And when you have that fire burning inside you and you have that Michael Jordan, I can command myself to do something great all the time mentality, sometimes it's hard to know that, at the end of the day, father time waits for no one, and at some point you won't be able to. What about the fact that for a lot of players, it's baseball that tells them that they don't have it anymore? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so with Yachty, though, you have you have to think about it from... Okay, what, what, where's the value? Is the value in the offense? Is the value in what he does for you still behind the plate? Is the value in the way that he develops the pitchers? Because all of that is not going to be equal. So you're going to have to do some pros and cons on, on what the value is. And I think that that's what the Cardinals are probably doing right now when they're thinking about this situation. And to no one's surprise, those conversations with Yachty have kind of stalled during this pandemic. The only thing that he mentioned is that we had had some good conversations about it. And that was about it. But everything stopped. You know, we, we all know that, you know, fateful Friday the 13th, right, in March, when all the sports shut down. Ever since that day, there hasn't been a single conversation regarding a contract extension with the Cardinals. And then he was very, very clear about that. He's like, this is something that I expressed to them. That is something. And they were open to conversation. That's just all Yaddy said. But at this point, there's zero sense of what could happen. And it is going to be a very personal decision uh, for the Cardinals to decide whether they want Yeti Molina, you know, to be their backstop in the next two years, you know, whether he gives them the best opportunity to win, which is all teams are in the business of doing. In defense of the Cardinals, I don't think that that should be top of mind for the organization or for Major League Baseball because they don't know what baseball is going to look like <laughs> in 2021. If, and they don't know what their revenues are going to look like in 2021. So, it's difficult to make that decision right now unless Yachty's willing to stay for less money and be within the parameters of what the Cardinals are going to make. How can they decide how much to pay people? They don't even know what baseball is going to look like this season, yeah. let alone be able to project what it's going to look like or what their financials are going to look like next season. And just like the Cardinals are going to have to weigh the pros and cons, Yachty is also going to have to weigh the pros and cons. And we know that he is so respected in baseball and that he can go into any clubhouse and that respect factor will be there. But it won't be the same as it is no. in St. Louis. It will not be the same as it is with the Cardinals. And he'll have to decide if it's a monetary thing, if it's a respect thing, whatever thing he needs from the Cardinals to make it seem okay. He's going to have to decide if it's enough. This is a player whose war has decreased in each of the last three years. And the fast lane asked Marley Rivera about 
the possible interest of other teams. When we published that story, the news story of Yadi being open to free agency, like you said, he wants to stay in St. Louis. I want to stress this. Sure. He wants to stay in St. Louis. But when he said that he was open to free agency, I got so many texts from so many people from different teams saying, do you believe this to be true? <laughs> Did he just say that, or is it true? Because one of the things that is going to happen is that the next free agency, as you guys know, time catching, it's just, it doesn't even exist anymore. The people that started at the same time as Molina, right? Buster Posey, they're no longer catching, right? Or they're not going to finish their careers as, as great catchers. And Yachty has been so durable. Those young teams, and I'm throwing these names out there. This has nothing to do with teams that texted me. So I want to be you know, very clear that these are not people who told me. But if you think about a team like the New York Mets with a really young rotation, right? If you think about these teams, they could really use some help. You know, someone like the Washington Nationals who have this, like, you know, even though they just won the World Series, but they did not do it with elite catching. So when you think what Yachty can contribute to a franchise, I do think that there's going to be a prime number for his services. And I would think that it would be teams, well, it's, A, has to be a team with money, mm-hmm. but I would think that teams that have a little bit less experience pitching than Washington or the Mets would benefit most from having a catcher like Yadier Molina. But it's got to be young pitching on a team that has a chance to win. Is there a team that comes to mind? I think Atlanta. Oh, gosh, yeah. With uh, They have a wealth of pitching in their system, and... Obviously, they have a chance to win, and with all of the young position players, and I know Austin Hedges is a terrific young catcher for San Di- the Padres, San Diego, but they have a ton of young pitching on the way, and they have a boatload of young position talent, too. That would be a spot that I would think would be really intriguing for a guy like Yadier. Well, they should be interested in Yadier Molina, I'll put it that way. So the first cut we heard from Marley, she said this is going to be a very personal decision for the Cardinals. Whatever happens with Yadi, fans are going to take it personally, one way or the other. This mm-hmm. is going to be a very divisive decision, whichever way it falls. It, whether he stays, people said there's going to be a camp that says you kept him too long, we need to develop a, another guy like Kisner, it's time to pass the torch. Or if he were to go, there's going to be a faction of the fan base that says, this is an icon. He still has stuff left. How could you have let him go? And I think those, the, the people that are rational about it when they, like you said, they see certain numbers decreasing. They know that at some point it's going to be someone else behind the plate for the Cardinals. They can rationally say, okay, I'm going to emotionally be ready for that day. But then to hear Marley Rivera, when I was driving around listening to the fast lane yesterday, to hear her say the Mets, to hear her say the Nationals, in my mind, I immediately jumped to a team the Cardinals are facing in the postseason, Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden there's Yadier Molina. And how would you really feel if you knew that he could come up and he still had that fire and he could contribute for another team's success that could detriment the Cardinals. That would be a very tough pill to swallow. Well, I think there's going to be two things that the Cardinals are going to look at and that Yachty is going to have to buy into. And Yachty has been in charge for a long time. He plays when he wants, as much as he wants, and the Cardinals always defer to him. Mm-hmm. To me, the two keys are going to be He's got to be willing to work within their budget because, for better or worse, they're always going to have a budget. And he's going to have to fit within that. But the other thing is, when he is 39, he's going to have to swallow his pride a little bit and be willing to play, maybe if they have a 162-game schedule, play half the games Mm -hmm. so that a younger catcher like Kisner can be developed. And maybe even, unlike people like Brett Favre, or Joe Montana, accept a mentorship role for a young catcher. 
that would be ideal. I just don't know if he's ready to concede that, that, that point yet. I don't know either. But we talk about intangibles with the Audi. One of the other things is how many people miss those Tony Larissa teams? They miss that fire. We always, even though Mike Schultz has it in mm-hmm. him, and we certainly saw that with the Randy Rosarana leaked video. Right. <laughs> we saw that when that door closes and he's with his guys, that side comes out of him. He doesn't necessarily give it to the media or to the public. But I think a lot of people look at those Tony Larissa teams and Albert's intensity, and they yearn for that style of play, and they yearn for that sentiment out of their players. And you have Yachty, Wainwright. It seems like those are the last ties, really, to, to well, those teams. And I think a lot of fans would, would miss that. There was a ton of concern when David Backus and Troy Brower left the Blues. Where's the leadership going to come yeah. from? And young players grow into leadership roles. And Alex Petrangelo became a Stanley Cup champion captain. And guys like Pareko were able to grow into greater leadership roles on the team. Obviously, the, the coach had an awful lot to do with Alexander Steen accepting a leadership role on the team. You get a guy like Shen, you, you have to let guys grow into it. And sometimes young guys are suppressed. When you have veteran leadership like Brower and Backus were, they defer to the older leaders. And sometimes when those guys leave is when younger players turn into good leaders. You know that Jack Flaherty is is ready. He's mm-hmm. he's transitioning through Adam Wainwright. Adam Wainwright, so much of, of his leadership skills and that quality you see developing in Jack Flaherty. It's already there. But I don't I don't know who would be the person that would take over for Yachty. I don't either. But it's uh, hey, there are, as we've mentioned before, cemeteries are full of indispensable people. <laughs> so at some point, he's not going to be there, and you got to have that person that takes over for him. Somebody's going to have to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> That's Michelle. I'm Randy on 101 ESPN. Coming up, Stan Kroenke is looking for a loan. Yes, the $13 billion man trying to get some help from his fellow owners. Daniel Kaplan of The Athletic broke the story yesterday. He's next on 101 ESPN. Time for the Athletic Insider Report, brought to you by The Athletic, where you can find smart, in-depth St. Louis sports coverage for the diehard fan. No ads, no pop-ups, just quality journalism from an all-star team of writers. With Michelle Smallman, I'm Randy Carricker, and it's great to have you with us on 101 ESPN. I've always admired the work of Daniel Kaplan, who has become a friend of the station and does spectacular work and in his latest missive at The Athletic, writes about the loan that Stan Kroenke is asking for from his fellow owners in the NFL. And Daniel Kaplan's with us now on the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line on 101 ESPN in St. Louis. Mr. Kaplan, it's always good to talk to you. How are you doing today? Uh, all right, another day in lockdown in New York City, but uh, otherwise pretty good. Well, let's start with this. Uh, next week, the owners will hold a virtual meeting, and in that meeting, as you wrote at The Athletic, Stan Kroenke is going to ask for $500 million to help fund his stadium, and that would make his total take $900 million. Uh, NFL owners have been reluctant in the past to part with their dollars. Why would they approve this now? And it would be $900 million from the NFL itself. He has other borrowings for for the the stadium that he's building in Southern California. Why would they do it uh, at, at this point? Uh, he, he's one of the he's one of the clan, and uh, Jerry Jones, who pushed through the the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, who helped push through the relocation from St. Louis, is firmly behind it. And I'm told uh, Roger Goodell is firmly behind it. I think there's the feeling that uh, the deal they they essentially 
twisted Stan's arm to sign when he moved to L.A., in which he, in the end, accepted the San Diego Chargers into the stadium with no with no real capital cost, that that's coming back to haunt Stan Kroenke. And we can talk a little more about that and how that's played out. Well, Daniel, let's just go from there. How is it coming back to haunt Stan Kroenke? Well, if you remember, he was a few votes short of the relocation vote in January 2016. And as part of the deal to get him over the hump, uh, he had to agree to either let the Chargers or the Raiders into his stadium. And the, and the deal that he signed was they would put forward, forward some of this stadium funding money from the league as well as their PSL money, the personal seat license money. But if the personal seat license money did not come through or did not come through according to projections, there was no there was no fallback. It was up to Stan Kroenke to make up the difference. And I think most of the listeners probably know the San Diego Chargers relocation to L.A. has been I don't want to call it an unmitigated disaster, but it's not gone according to plan. It's at least a mitigated disaster. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's a mitigated disaster. Uh, So, um, I mean, they're selling PSLs for like 100 bucks a pop, and the amount of money that's that's coming in for this L.A. Chargers PSL uh, hall is is minimal. And that that shortfall, Stan Kroenke has to make up. So there's the expectation that perhaps the owners of the NFL, knowing they – made Stan Kroenke sign this deal to approve the relocation, that they would be more willing to extend him more credit from their stadium funding pool. And obviously, because I know that St. Louis fans, Daniel, are going to say, wait, the Commissioner Goodell sent a letter to Governor Nixon just five years ago saying that $300 million in the G4 fund was fundamentally unacceptable for the league. Times have changed, and it's not just for the Rams and the Chargers anymore. Around the league, these numbers are going up, right? The, the, yeah, back in, back in the day when... Commissioner Goodell wrote that letter to Governor Nixon. Uh, they were drawing a hard line and extending more than the $200 million uh, that the, the then G3, as it was called, stadium funding program, would extend to teams for new stadiums. Uh, now, particularly with the pandemic, but uh, certainly in other cases, the league has shown itself more willing to, I don't want to say break the rules because the NFL gets to set the rules, but break the the previous procedures. Even though, as you mentioned, the NFL is very much bought into this, it was, you know, kind of their plan to get Stan to move, so they feel invested in this in one way or the other more than financially. Part of the way that Stan is going to finance this stadium is from gate revenue this fall. I wonder if the NFL isn't going to lend him this money and then regret it when they realize just what a financial toll it's going to take not having fans going through the turnstiles. Well, the, the the pandemic has upset a lot of plans uh, across sports across the country. So uh, the Stan Kroenke L.A. Stadium is, is just one of the many casualties. This really has been the perfect storm for Stan Kroenke. First, the stadium was supposed to open last year in Southern California, rainy season, delayed construction. Now we have the pandemic. You have the... Um, you, you, you have the situation with the Chargers. It, it, it's certainly not going according to plan, but the NFL and Stan Kroenke are very heavily invested in the Inglewood project. So it's, it's going to open. It's going to happen. It's just 
not not going to return the it's not going to have a return on investment that they expected. Daniel Kaplan of the Athletic is with us on 101 ESPN. One of the things I wonder is for a guy that is north of 13 billion dollars in total wealth, why does he need to borrow? Why can't he spend his money? Well, he probably could spend his money if he were turned down or he could go to his bankers and and borrow the credit if he needed to, but the 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 funding from the NFL is very low interest rate, and he's also requesting that it get paid back over 30 years, not the 15 years that it typically uh, is paid back over from the state that the stadium funding pool requires. So uh, you you get good terms from your business partners. So Daniel, when this is all said and done, what do you estimate the final price tag will be? Oh, you know, I mean, realize it's not just the stadium, it's an entertainment district. The NFL Network is having a headquarters built for it. There's an amphitheater. But the, the prices, the, the price tags I've seen have been anywhere between 5 and $6 billion. And if you recall, when the, when the NFL approved the St. Louis relocation, the price was $2.2 billion. Daniel Kaplan of The Athletic. I want to ask about the lawsuit here in St. Louis, and I don't know how aware, I know that you keep a close eye on it, but I don't know how, you, how aware you are of where that stands. I know that St. Louis just isn't losing in this, and previous articles, I, I, Seth Wickersham at ESPN had said that uh, other owners were frustrated with Kroenke because of the St. Louis lawsuit. Do you think there is enough frustration there that would prevent some owners from voting for this loan? I, I absolutely think, uh, not perhaps not because of that, but there are certain owners who are fundamentally opposed to these types of loans. I'm thinking Mike Brown of the Cincinnati Bengals. He voted against the G4 funding in the past. Uh, the G3, I should say. Uh, that's, the, uh, that's the vernacular in the NFL for the stadium funding loans. Uh, so there, there will be some owners who probably vote against it, but I, I don't see it. I, I don't see it going down. And by the way, this does set the stage. For example, the Glazer family in Tampa. If you are going to get public funding for a stadium, having the ability to at least get four hundred and fifty million, and we should mention that this is for the Chargers and the Rams, so it's split. So the. The way I'm reading this is the Buccaneers should be able to get a massive loan if they need to upgrade Roger or uh, Raymond James Stadium or build a new one in Tampa. Uh, yeah, I mean, clear, clearly any team that uh, builds a new stadium is eligible for this for this funding. Now, it, typically it was two hundred million dollars, but as we've discussed, it's it's that 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 figure has gone up. Daniel, we know that there's been a lot of things that have upset the timeline for the NFL to get this Englewood project done. We know that the initial financials have been more than doubled. We know that this has been kind of a headache for the NFL. They've wanted L.A. for a long time. They had an owner who would get it done, but it has not worked out according to plan. And you have the lawsuit looming as well. Do you think there's any part of the NFL that regrets what they did moving the Rams out of St. Louis to L.A.? Um, maybe in a dark moment you could get them to admit it, but I'll, I'll tell you a story. Uh, uh, when uh, R- Ralph Wilson passed away, it, it occurred during, during an NFL owners meeting, and um, Ralph Wilson and Mike Brown were the two owners who voted against uh, the, the CBA in 2006 that turned so awfully against the league. And I asked Mike Brown after... Wilson passed if there had been any regret expressed by other owners to him for voting for that deal. And he looked at me and he said, nobody in that room expresses regret. 
Um, so I, I, I don't think the NFL owners are, are the type to express regret. Uh, last thing for Daniel Kaplan of The Athletic, and you can always read his great work at The Athletic. This is this league's a juggernaut, and we always say that there is no threat to the NFL. But does the pandemic and does the outlay of cash that they're having to turn out, not just for this stadium but other things, does this put a dent at all in what the NFL is as a juggernaut? I don't think it puts a dent in them as a juggernaut. Uh, you, we've seen the NFL draft and the free free agency uh, period dominate sports headlines in this in this lockdown period um it, it does dent them financially like it has the other leagues but uh i mean if the, they didn't play games in the fall perhaps then we could have that discussion but i don't i don't see this denting the nfl as a juggernaut if if anything it's it's cemented their their status as the dominant sport in america daniel kaplan good to hear your voice great work as always at the athletic thanks for taking some time with us today Okay, thank you. Have a good weekend. That's Daniel Daniel Kaplan of The Athletic on 101 ESPN. $900 million And just, well, it, Stan's going to have to pay it all. Here's the way it works. It's going to be $900 million, but it's four fifty for the Chargers and four fifty for the Rams. But the Chargers aren't paying it. Stan is asking for the loan, and it'll mm-hmm. be Stan's uh, loan to pay off. The Spanos family doesn't. All they do is take money from this deal. They don't have to pay anything. You know, when Daniel Kaplan said this is just the perfect storm of things to make this project a nightmare you for Shane Cron- I smile. <laughs> I just, you know, you reap what you sow, Randy. You really yeah. do. Yeah. And if indeed St. Louis wins this lawsuit, you think about the $900 million loan that these owners are making to Kroenke. What's uh, nine? That'd be $30 million a team, right? I don't know. We're not supposed to do math on okay. the show. I believe it is. <laughs> but then if, let's throw a random number out there. Let's say that uh, the that St. Louis would be awarded $3.1 billion. Good random number. Distinct possibility. That would be the 31 other teams. That would be $100 million a team plus the $30 million that they're providing the loan for. I would have to think that there would be a little frustration on the part of the other owners. Especially post-pandemic without fan revenue, without that gate revenue. Then you're yeah. going to get handed a bill from St. Louis for $130 million. And by the way, if Jerry Jones is so behind this, why doesn't Jerry Jones pay it? That's a good point. He's got $900 million. Talk about another guy who's just collected checks. Yeah, you bet. That's Michelle. I'm Randy. And this is Character and Smallman on 101 ESPN. Next up, Freeze Pops will join us for Take It or Leave It. Get your text in to the Air Comfort Service text line 65780. A Friday edition of Teoli is next on 101 ESPN. Take it or leave it. Give us your feedback now by texting 65780. It's Take It or Leave It with Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN. Okay, before we get to the questions from Freeze Pops, and we welcome your texts, 65780, uh, take you behind the curtain of Carriker and Smallman. <laughs> we spent that whole break talking about our disdain for Stan Kroenke. The whole break. But we didn't even know we were coming back. The mics could have come on and we could have just been like, he's the worst. So we hope you join us in that. You know, there's part of me, Randy, that truly feels like the book is closed on my hatred for the Rams, especially after the XFL and the Battle Hawks came to town and we just fell in love with that team and we supported them and they supported us. And it was a national storyline, how special that relationship was and how St. Louis is a football town. Part of me just felt like, you know what? I'm done with that. 
But then I hear Daniel Kaplan come on and talk about how this is a perfect storm for Stan Kroenke and how the NFL is having to spend all this other money and, you know, it's just really not lo looking like it's going to work out the way they expected. And part of me does feel joy. I, you know, well, I feel satisfied. I can't lie. I'm with you. And the fact that they've alienated their own fans in L.A. with the whole Jersey thing is great. It's all 12 wonderful. of them? <laughs> now there's 10. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let's get to freeze pops for Tioli. What do you got, my man? Guys, I don't think anyone's surprised that you spent an entire break laughing about how you both hate Dan Kroenke. I think all of our listeners are not surprised at all. Yeah, we could have right. honestly blown out Tioli and just reveled in that interview. Really? <laughs> we we this could do that the rest segment. of the show. <laughs> yeah. Guys, it's being reported that Jeff Bezos is trending towards becoming the world's first trillionaire with a T in 2026. Seeing Bezos make a trillion dollars makes you wish you had picked another career path. Take it or leave it. I'm going to leave it because I'm just not that smart. But can I tell a quick story here? Always. You, you two, you're young, but you remember Sears stores, right? Of course. Yeah. So right at the outset of the internet, Sears invested in, I believe it was CompuServe, a, an inter internet platform. It was kind of like AOL. It was a, a poor man's AOL. And one of the executives at Sears where they had this massive catalog industry where they delivered to homes, people would get this two-inch thick Sears catalog every year. Okay. They said, why don't we set it up so that we put our catalog on our CompuServe website and we'll just have people order our stuff there. And they sold everything. And one of the executives or two said, no, that's, that costs too much. Nobody's ever going to want to buy goods online like that. <laughs> and so, like, this is in the early late 80s, early 90s, where Sears could have been Amazon, and instead they're basically out of business and Amazon's Amazon. But to get back to the question, I'm going to leave it because I would have never been smart enough to do what Jeff Bezos has done. Yeah, that's the exact same reason that I'm leaving it. I could have an idea and I do not have the business acumen to see it through. Um, so, uh, no, I'm glad I chose this career path because I get to hang out with you every morning, Randy, so I'm going to leave it. I like that. Hanging out with you, too. Oh, that was nice, guys. Yeah. I know. See? We picked, we picked the right thing. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to say, yeah, wow, Jeff Bezos, trillion bucks, must be nice. Maybe, maybe I should have gone to business school. No, I'm going to spin it into a positive on this Friday. I, I, I guess there has to be a first trillionaire, but... What are you going to do with a trillion dollars? I think it's a, with a billion, you can spend $100 an hour, 24 hours a day for 100 years and have money left over. <laughs> so that's a billion. So what do you need a trillion for? Part of me thinks having a trillion dollars would be so stressful because any decision that you made... Well, I was listening to the Rizzuto... I always listen to, to the Rizzuto show when I drive in and they were talking about this and they were reading some comments from Twitter that were underneath the, the news story and one of them said... If Jeff Bezos is a trillionaire, everybody in the world should have the right to rob him blind whenever they see him because he's got a, a trillion bucks. And I just think that no matter what you do financially, because you're always going to be in the news because you have so much money and because you own Amazon, mm -hmm. you're going to be judged and scrutinized. And if you donate a billion dollars to charity, it's never going to be enough. If you donate $10 billion to charity, it's never going to be enough. It just feels like you would be under the microscope for your financial decisions at all all times and even though you've developed this great business and this great product especially now that so many people are benefiting from and using you're vilified because you've mm -hmm. done so yeah and you better not get divorced again yeah no oh, and by the way i i was it, it wasn't CompuServe; it was prodigy oh, that sears okay. owned prodigy was the platform that they owned i used to buy husky jeans at sears <laughs> see <With> my mom <laughs>
could have been a young lad. Fear. All right, guys. Uh, no, here's another question. Uh, a restaurant in the D.C. area will be opening up their patio for dinner in a few weekends. And as a way for diners to feel more comfortable, the, the head chef is going to fill the inside of the restaurant with life-sized mannequins and have his wait staff pour them wine and treat them like real customers. A room full of mannequins being treated like real people does not make you feel comfortable in any way. Take it or leave it. I'm going to take that. I think it might make me feel uncomfortable. It might freak me out. That mannequin's been staring at me for a half hour. I'm going to take it because I'm going to be like, why did the mannequin get a refill before I did? <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and, I, and I think what what these restaurant owners aren't understanding, I, I get that they're trying to be creative and come up with a way for diners to feel like it's a normalized experience. But you can't, the way that a restaurant will ever feel normalized is the hustle bustle, the symphony of clanking and conversation and, and just knowing that you can sit at a table with someone and have a conversation and the ambient noise in the restaurant is going to drown it out, basically. If you're in a room and it's all mannequins, everything is going to still be on you. The spotlight is still going to be on you. Everything you say is going to be audible. Every waiter is going to be hyper aware of your experience. So whether it's a mannequin or not, it's still going to be weird. And if you put a mannequin right next to the window, have you ever been on a patio or inside at a restaurant like in the Central West End or the Loop where they have the outdoor dining and you're chair is only separated by a window between the person next to you? Yes. I'd rather not have the mannequin there. Me too. Do you ever take Louie to your puppy to uh, those restaurants in the Loop or Central West End or anything? Uh, I've tried it before. He's um, He doesn't play well with others. Oh, okay. So we've stopped that. <laughs> Guys, from the 636, uh, this one's a, a quick one. Tioli sounds like an Italian dish. Take it or leave it. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I'll have to take it, yeah. Yeah, I'll take the I'll take the garden salad and a side of tioli. Mm-hmm. Tioli. Yeah. Yeah. So as somebody who spent a lot of time in Italy, if you aren't aware, Michelle spent a semester in Italy, and obviously you are of Italian descent. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite Italian dish? Oh God, Randy, that's like asking you to choose who your favorite child is. It's impossible. Not that hard. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you don't have to reveal who, but do you do you have a favorite kid? No, I don't. Because Liar. I, we've talked about this on my <laughs> podcast before. I think every parent has a favorite child. They would never admit it out loud. But if you took a lie detector test, there's there's got to be one that you have more of a connection with or that just is easier to deal with. Because Well, that's true. You know, people have favorite parents. Favorite. I mean, come on. Yeah. So for me, it's a pasta con pesce. <laughs> Way to change the subject. <laughs> oh, you like a pesce? Yeah. Yeah, I like a tutamari, too. Um... You know, I tend to go major nostalgia factor when I think about Italian dishes. I love my mom's pasta con broccoli. Um, Penne vodka is always amazing. I just, I don't really discriminate when it comes to pasta. I love a good manicot. Good for you. I love lasagna. I love, you know, a classic spaghetti bolognese. You know. There's really not many I like. I just it's a lot I, of kids. I, exactly. <laughs> I've been busy, Randy. <laughs> little did you know. I just don't like mushrooms. So if it's anything okay. with fungi in it, I'm out. All right. Good. Thanks, Reese Pops. Thanks, guys. And thank you for, for your text to the Air Comfort Service text line 65780. Our fresh take of the day is next on 101 ESPN. That was the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN.